Awesome. Kia ora, everyone. Good to see you this morning. I'm so pumped about a night before Christmas, eh? This is going to be my first one. Uh, I just, I can't wait. I think it's going to be such a fun opportunity to uh, hang out and do something really fun together, eh? Have a nice big party, eat some food, and hopefully it's sunny and we all get sunburned. Um, so today I get the great joy of continuing on our series uh, through David's life. Um, but before we do that, have any of you ever planned something? and worked really hard to, to organize something and get something together, and you, you prayed really hard, and you made sure you did everything as best as you could, and then when the event or the thing you were working on finally came around, it just failed miserably? Yep. Yay! I'm not the only one. There was, um, there was one time when I was in, in YM, I was asked to uh, lead worship for a conference that was happening. And it was a small conference, but they said, hey, Colin, we, we would love for you to come and lead it. And, um, you know, we probably don't have a whole lot of other musicians, but we think just you and your guitar would probably be enough. It's kind of the feel we're going for. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm really excited about that. So I said, yeah, I'll totally do that. So I kind of got ready, and, and I prayed, and, and they were praying, and they sent out all their promo material, and I got a whole bunch of songs ready that I thought people would really like and really enjoy and would really kind of fit the theme of the conference really well. And so we prayed, we prayed, and we laid out our plans, and we did everything we could with all the wisdom that we had. And uh, when we got there, uh, so it was supposed to be a conference, and no one showed up. Like, no one showed up. Well, there were some people who were there. Uh, one group had to be there. They were uh, a group of YWAMers doing their training, uh, one of their training schools there. And so as part of their training school, they had to go to this conference. So we had like 12 people that were forced to be there. And then of people who chose to be there, there was just one couple that came from England, <laughs> one couple. So it was awkward as already, like getting up there. And so then on that first morning, they got me up there and I, I got to start leading worship and I'm like, oh, this is really awkward. <sighs> okay, all right, so I get up there and I start playing and I start playing through this first song and no one knows it, like no one knows it. And when there's 17 people in a room and you're the only one singing, it gets real awkward real quick. And so I kind of wrap that song up real quick and then moved on to the next one and thought, okay, this one will work. And so I start playing through it and only about half of them know it. And again, when there's only 15 people in a room and only half of them know it, the half that do are too sheepish to sing. So they're like, and I just felt so awkward as this thing, I could see the wheels coming off. And so uh, I don't know if Darren does this, but there's this weird thing in my psyche where if I'm you know, leading worship and leading the singing, and people aren't singing loud enough for getting into it, I somehow think if I hit the guitar harder, they'll start singing more. And so I start like beating on this guitar and singing really loud and awkwardly, which makes them all feel scared because I'm like, sing, sing. And uh, so no one sings and it's the most awkward worships that I ever led. And it finishes and I get off and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that's done. And then my heart sunk because I realized I had four more days four more days that I had to lead this group in worship. And it just reminded me that there's this, sometimes there's this famous uh, line from a poem that says, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And sometimes even the best laid plans of me trying to get this whole worship set together and all these people trying to gather this conference, and even though the best laid plans we put together, they often go awry. And so today, as we look at the story, we're going to find one character who encounters this in a real difficult way, and it sends him on a trajectory that changes his life forever. Um, but before we get into that, let's pray. Uh, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways 
are not our ways. As we come together as a family to look into your word, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Uh, Would you reveal yourself in ways that we didn't know or didn't expect? And would you help us to remove maybe some images of you that are more of our own creation than reflective of who you actually are? Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, bring this word alive? In your name we pray, amen. So uh, today we're following through. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, It's going to be focusing on this one character named Ahithophel. Anyone say that three times fast? Ahithophel, Ahithophel, Ahithophel. (laughs) Ah. Ah. This is much better than uh, Mephibosheth. If you remember Craig a few weeks ago, I had to do Mephibosheth, and I thought, I'm so glad I didn't get stuck with that one. We had called him Mephi for the entire service, because I know I'm going to, I know I would have screwed it up. So Ahithophel was uh, this, this character that plays a huge role in the story that we're looking at. Ahithophel was a wise counselor for royalty, for David. But he wasn't just kind of any wise counselor. See, when Samuel describes him, he said that when people came to Ahithophel for advice, it was like they were going directly into the word of the Lord. Like his counsel and his words were just always bang on, just write what needed to be said at just the right time, at just the right level. And so when people thought of Ahithophel, they thought of solid, good counsel, and counsel that came from God. Now, Ahithophel also had another thing that was really significant. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so we encounter Ahithophel right in the middle of the story of Absalom. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we covered the story of Absalom, David's son, who uh, basically led a civil war, tried to usurp his his father for the throne and uh, kill his dad and be able to take Israel for himself. And so in the story of Absalom, you've got this key character of Ahithophel. And uh, that shouldn't go there yet. Try going back. Huzzah. This key character of Ahithophel. And when Absalom went to Hebron and crowned himself as king, Samuel says that Ahithophel went and joined Absalom. And when they were together, Ahithophel's presence gave so much more credibility to Absalom's plot. And you can't help but wonder, see, Ahithophel would have been a wise, wise counselor and a wise man, and he was the grandfather of Bathsheba, and you can't help but wonder what he knew. He probably heard rumors way back in the day of when you know, Uriah and Bathsheba were happily married, and he was really happy with that, and then all of a sudden... There are rumors about Bathsheba going to the palace while Uriah is out at war, and, and then suddenly Uriah is dead in a failed military technique that normally David and his generals would never normally use because they know it doesn't work. And, and then suddenly, when Uriah is dead, Bathsheba mourns, and as soon as her mourning time is done, like the day it's finished, she's brought into the palace. And she's now David's wife. And then she's immediately with child. You can't help but wonder whether Ahithophel knew, or at least suspected. So when Absalom rises up, and when Absalom does all the things that David should have done, when Amnon raped Tamar, and Absalom doesn't just stand by and let it happen, but he takes justice in his own hands and gets things done, you can't help but wonder whether Ahithophel saw Absalom and thought, man, David is morally bankrupt. He's passive. He's not moving the kingdom forward at all. Absalom seems like he's actually got a plan. So Ahithophel eventually joins into Absalom's conspiracy. And the part of the story where we join in is right after David 
has left Jerusalem in shame. He's left in weeping and in mourning. And as David is leaving, there's this small phrase where David realizes that Ahithophel is still with Absalom. So David prays to God and says, God, please frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. Because David knew that if Ahithophel was in, with Absalom, then they might not actually have a chance to survive and make it out because Ahithophel's advice and counsel was so good. And so we join them in the story right after Absalom is returned to Jerusalem. And so Ahithophel gives this advice and says, Absalom, go sleep with your father's concubines. Assert your dominance on the roof of the palace so that all of Israel knows that you have now taken control over the kingdom. So Absalom does just that. And so now they're in the palace, steady, safe, and secure, and they're debating their next move. And we join them in the story in this council room as they're debating, what do we do next? How do we deal with David? And how do we cement Absalom's role on the throne? Ahithophel said, look, I'd choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I'd attack him while he's weary and weak. I would strike him with terror. Then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king. And then we'd bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. And this plan seemed good to Absalom and to the elders of Israel. It's quick, it's cutting, it's ruthless, and it would have been incredibly effective. David has left in shambles, weeping, mourning, without enough resources, and now he's out in the wilderness, and Ahithophel says, look, let's end this quick. There's no point dallying about, I'll take 12,000 men, we'll come on them so fast their troops won't know what's happening, we'll kill David without attacking the troops, and we're able to bring all of his army back in peace, because once David's done, this whole fight is over. It was good, solid advice. It was good wisdom. But there was a problem, and that problem was called Hushai. When David was leaving the city, he came across this man named Hushai. And Hushai came to David weeping and mourning and said, David, how awful is this situation? Let me come with you. And David looked at Hushai and said, Hushai, no. What good are you to me? You are wise and respected. Instead, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. Work your way into the king's graces and then I need you to be there to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. Because David knew if it was just Ahithophel and Absalom, there was no way forward because Ahithophel was so wise and he knew what needed to be done. So Hushai does just that. He returns to Jerusalem, pro pro professes his, uh, his unity with Absalom, saying, Absalom, I'm with you. You're the Lord's anointed. We can do this together. And so Absalom accepts him. And so Absalom says to Hushai, okay, Hushai, this is what Ahithophel has recommended. What then do you say? Hushai replied, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men. They're fighters. And as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He's not going to spend the night with the troops. Look, even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. And if he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there's been a slaughter among the troops of those who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all of Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. 
So I advise you instead, let all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, and with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all of Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it down to the valley until not so much a pebble is left. And now what we find here is this battle between these two wise men, the battle between the counselors. And you can almost imagine Ahithophel looking out and thinking, the best laid plans often go awry. Because Hushai, for all of his eloquence and wisdom, manages to persuade Absalom and the elders to go his way. And what it means is by persuading Absalom and the elders, it gives David enough time to leave, get away, regroup, resupply, and be ready for the coming battle that eventually happens. But can you imagine how frustrated Ahithophel must have been? Even the best laid plans sometimes go awry. And I want us to focus on a few things that Hushai did that enabled him to twist Absalom away from Ahithophel's good advice towards his corrupt advice. And the first thing is Ahithophel plays with this theme of wisdom. Now they're both shown as wise men. And in Israel, wisdom has this real key thing. And one of the, one of the interesting things about the way the Bible talks about wisdom is it's often very poetic. Have you noticed that? When you read through Proverbs or Psalms, do you notice how poetic it is? Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your word is like a light unto my eyes, a lamp unto my feet. Even when God ends up talking through the prophets, most times that God speaks through the prophets, it comes out very poetic, eh? Like when you read through Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, you read when God is speaking to Israel and half the time you don't even understand what he's saying, right? Or is that just me? I read through Ezekiel and I'm like, well, God just spoke for three paragraphs and I didn't, I didn't get a word of it. Because they always seem to use this poetic language. And I love the way they do that because for them, what they were trying to do is they were trying to communicate something divine with human means, with human language. And it's like the same way when we, when we try to talk in love or communicate something more than just facts to one another, we end up turning to poetry or language to do that. So for example, if you say to someone, I love you, then they're like, okay, cool, cool story, bro. But then if someone else looks at you and is like, I love you with the love of a thousand suns burning brightly in the heavens, you're like, ooh, oh, it's quite nice, wasn't it really? And so this is what Israel, they did the same thing too. They used poetic language to try and communicate something of the divine. So if you wanted to sound wise, they would use metaphors and illustrations to try and communicate something wider than just human facts, but a bit of the divine wisdom in their language. And now look at the way these two counselors go about that. When you look at Ahithophel, notice, notice something really key about his advice. Notice how short it is? It's four verses, and it's filled with facts. Look, Ahithophel, I'm gonna choose 12,000 men, and we're going to go out tonight, and then we're going to attack him, and I'm going to strike him, and then they're going to flee, and I'll just kill the king, and the king's death means everybody will come back safe. The end. Just pretty flat, pretty standard, lots of verbs, 
No metaphor, no illustration. Look instead now at the way Hushai describes his advice. Your father is as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. If, if, uh, if anyone, if even the bravest soldier hears that your troops are lost, your bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. Or let all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, be gathered. We'll fall on him as dew settles on the ground and none will be left alive. We'll bring ropes to that city and we'll drag it down to the valley until not so much a pebble is left. Ooh, there we go. Notice how his language is filled with this and how it so much resembles the wisdom that they would have been accustomed to. Ahithophel came out with facts, statements, let's get this done quick and easy. Hushai came out with metaphors, with poetry, and he made himself sound like the prophets and the poets and the wise men whose scriptures they read. And so how could Absalom listen to the two and which one sounds more wise? The one that sounds like their wisdom literature. The difficulty for Absalom as we end up finding out is that not all that glitters is gold and not all that sounds wise actually is. And Absalom is duped in by this wonderful, beautiful language. And the second thing that happens in this, in this debate between the two people is the role of pride. Um, one of the things that it's often said in team environments is when you have to work through a problem or work, you, you have to work through an issue, when you gather around it, you have to work the problem, not the person. Anyone else ever heard that? When you have to work through an issue, you focus on the problem, not on the person. So, for example, if, you are, if you're having a fight, you know, you're at home and there happen to be dishes in the sink that never seem to get washed and now ants are crawling all over them. And uh, the good way to go about that is you'd gather together with your spouse or your loved one and you'd say, hey, we've got, uh, got dishes in the sink and they're not getting done and there are lots of ants here and we need to do better because what we're doing now isn't working. So how can we put together a plan in place so that these dishes don't happen? Now, all of us know this very rarely happens. Instead, what normally happens is, why do you never do the dishes? Hear that? Why do you never do the dishes? And we begin to play the person and not the problem. And the quickest way to get a rise out of somebody, the quickest way to get someone defensive, the quickest way to get under someone's skin is to just start playing at them, not the issue. And it happens so often, why do you never do the dishes? What do you mean? I always do the dishes. Why are you always nagging me? Well, I'm always nagging you because you're always acting like a child. Well, I'm always acting like a child because you're always acting like my mother. And if you stop doing that, then everything would be better. Anyone else been, uh, been privy to this discussion before? But see, this is the exact same thing that Hushai ends up doing to Absalom. See, if you notice on Ahithophel's advice, the issue wasn't Absalom. The issue was, look, David's out there. And if we kill David, it's done. So look, I'll take some people. We'll just kill David and I'll bring the army back and it's done. It's a simple issue and we'll fix it. Instead, look at what Hushai does. He begins to play Absalom off David. He says, you know your father and his men, they're fighters as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. And the subtext is they're fiercer fighters than you are. And when they're out on their own, and if you try and get them, 
you're probably not going to be strong enough to get them in their current state because they're, they're stronger than you. And Absalom, if there's been a slaughter among the troops of Absalom, no one's going to trust you to lead anymore. If something happens, your role, your identity, your safety is gone. And he goes on to say, so instead, we're going to gather an army and uh, you yourself will lead them into battle. So here was the problem. You weren't as fierce as David. You weren't measuring up to him. So instead, we'll gather a whole army and you can prove that you'll measure up to him. You lead the charge. You go forward and you take command. And then everyone will know that you are the best person, the rightful king of Israel. See how clever it is? See how subtle it is? But you see how Hushai was able to just push a few things and twist a few things so that by the end, Absalom was just sucked in. How could he not say that Hushai's advice wasn't more wise? It sounded more wise and it called his own identity into question. So he needed to act on it to prove that he wasn't a lesser king than his father. While Ahithophel sits on the side, pulling his hair out, like, what are you thinking? Like, clearly Ahithophel would have known, no, if we take that long to gather an army, then David's going to be able to get his troops together. But somehow, Ahithophel's best laid plans were going awry. And even Ahithophel, for all of his wisdom and all of his cunning and all of his knowledge and his experience, wasn't able to move forward with what he had planned and what he had purposed. And the final reason that this all ends up coming about was because God was in control. At the end of each of their speeches, they, Absalom and his elders decided that Hushai's advice was the better of the two, so they would follow it. And then Samuel finishes it with this statement, for God himself had decreed to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel so that Absalom would not prevail. See, Ahithophel, for all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge, all of his best laid plans often went awry. And this passage promotes a scary and a difficult question for you and I as we look at it, because in this story we find someone who really thought he was probably doing the right thing. By all accounts, Ahithophel was doing the best he could with his wisdom with his knowledge and with his experience, David probably looked like a morally bankrupt king. Absalom probably looked like the future of the country, and he'd seen his own family line be burned by David's sin that he didn't seem to get punished for. So he's going to do the best that he can, which is bring in David's son, who might actually have a better chance at moving forward. Ahithophel, with his wisdom, thought he was doing the right thing. The difficulty was is that even though he was wise by human standards, and even though he was equated with the wisdom of God, in this situation... He was out of step with what God was doing. And so God had to push him back and push him into another place. And that's scary for you and me because if Ahithophel, with all of his wisdom, often missed what God was doing and God had to move him back and push against his plans, how much so might we, in our wisdom and our knowledge, miss what God is doing in our lives? Let me give you an example. Um, uh, there was another time when I was in YM, and I was kind of in a, in a rough space. Uh, I'd been there for a few years, and I felt like I had kind of plateaued, and I wasn't sure what to do next, and I was 
on this team that I didn't really enjoy being on anymore, and Haley, who uh, I was, wasn't dating yet, but definitely had the hots for, was leaving the team that I was in. And uh, anyone knows if the girl you're interested in is leaving, you kind of feel pretty rubbish about life. And so I didn't want to stay on this team anymore, and so I was praying, I was like, God, what do I do? This evangelism team that I'm on just doesn't seem like the right thing to do anymore. What do I do? See, Haley was going back to Switzerland. We were in England. She was going back to Switzerland. She was going to staff a discipleship training school. And she was really excited about it. She was going to have a great time. And I was like, man, this is awful. I'm stuck here with this crazy Englishman on my own. And Haley's leaving. And I, I don't know what to do. So I was praying, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And uh, I thought for sure God was like, hey, why don't you go do that? Why don't you go staff that DTS too? Go staff that discipleship training school for six months and then come back and you'll have just a new perspective. And I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. Like, give me a bit of a break from England, go do something really fun and something I'd enjoy doing. And then Haley was already accepted on this school as staff. And I was talking to her about it over the phone and she said, yeah, Colin, we're actually short one person on the staff team. We really need, we really need a guy. And uh, specifically, we need a guy who can kind of help run and manage kind of the music and the worship of our school. And I was like, yes! Like, that is a tailored description for me. This is confirmation of the Lord. So I went and I told my team leader in England about it, and I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to really think God's leading me to go staff the school in Switzerland. He's like, I don't know if that's the best option for you, Colin. And I was like, well, you're wrong. It is. And... uh, (laughs) Because I just thought he was jealous and didn't want all of his team members to leave in one month. And so I was like, you know what? I really think this is what God is saying. I'm going to go do that. So I go online and I apply to the school. And I even knew the school leader. The school leader and I, we did the same discipleship training school a few years earlier. So she knew me. I was tailor fit to the role. It's going to be an easy shoe in And so I submitted and I was just waiting to hear back. And then I get a phone call from her. And uh, she's like, hey, hey, how's it going? I was like, hey, good, waiting to be like, yeah, here we go. I'm going to go staff the school. And she says, uh, Colin, it's the weirdest thing happened. It's like, yeah, what's that? What's that? Someone paying for my staff fees? Awesome. Praise God. Living in the blessing. Um, and she said, no, um, Colin, I don't know how to say this. There's no easy way to say this. And it doesn't make sense to me, but every single time I pray about you coming and joining this school, I just don't get a sense that this is where God is leading. I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. I'm awesome. Like, just have me on your school. I can do all the music and worship for you. She said, no, Colin, really, I just, I, I don't know how to explain it other than I feel like God is saying, no, this isn't the right timing. <sighs> like, the wind was out of my sails, eh? Like, and now that meant I was stuck in England, but I had to kind of save face, and I was like, no, that's fine. You do what God is telling you to do. God's in control. And I hung up the phone and then went into a field and was like, God, what are you doing? And it was this fascinating thing where I was furious because I was convinced in my own wisdom and with what I could see and with where I was at that this was the right way to go. Everything seemed to be pointing in this direction, but the truth is that wasn't where God was leading. And what God had to do was actually push me back and close some doors, and it hurt so bad. I felt like I was personally rejected by my friend. I was now stuck in England without Haley, 
not sure what to do, and was left in this really raw space like I was just going to be wasting time for the next nine months as I just waited for something else to come across my door. And it was really a painful, painful experience. Felt like I'd been personally rejected, not just by this school, but I felt like I'd been personally rejected by God. Because all the plans that God had put out for me, all the things, the gifts I thought he'd put into me, everything where God was leading me, it was like God suddenly shut the door and was like, no, no more for you. And it was so hard, awfully hard. And so I had to stay in England and work through my frustrations and my pain and my difficulty and my fears and my own insecurities and all this stuff that had managed to be like nicely and neatly contained within me before kind of all came spilling out is I had to work through all these issues and insecurities about where my identity and where my security was placed and who God was calling me to be and what God was calling me to do. And I had to work through this incredibly difficult process. And it was only through working through that process that I met the other guitarist who was on the bass and made really good friends with him. And it was only through that process that we began to speak about what God was speaking to each of us. And it was only through that process I ended up starting a band which went and played shows all over the UK. And it was only because I played shows in that band that God has grabbed my heart and arrested my heart for the people who don't fit the church mold. And it was only through grabbing my heart that God led me here to New Zealand to study, to train, to be a pastor, to come to Papamoa and plant a church. Now that sounds really nice now, but if you'd have told me then right after I got off the phone, I'd have punched me in the face. Because the truth is, God is in control, and often that's a wonderful thing. And it feels great because we bask in God's goodness and God's glory. But by the very nature of God being in control and not us, that sometimes means he's going to have to push us in another direction that we don't like. He's going to have to close some doors that we are positive should be opened. And he has to do that. Because if we think about it logically, if God always did what we thought was best, and if God always opened the doors we thought he should open, if God always led us in the path that we thought was wisest, then God wouldn't be God. God would just be an extension of ourselves. But God is not us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And there are times when in our own wisdom, like Ahithophel, we think this is the right way forward, and all of our wisdom points to that, but even the best laid plans that we put down can often go awry. Because sometimes God needs to close some doors and push us in some directions that we don't want to go. And he uses that opportunity to form us, to shape us, to change us. Because when things are going well and going easy like we expect them to, often All of our junk can stay neatly tied down and neatly compact, but it's only when everything starts to blow up that the real us, the inner us, begins to come out, eh? And then God can work with the deeper issues within us. Sometimes God has to close some doors to work in the real us to lead us on the place where he wants us to go, not where we want us to go. And so just like Ahithophel, the question isn't necessarily a question of our own wisdom or our own security. The question is, are we in step with what he is doing? Ahithophel's story is quite tragic, really. Uh, At the end, Ahithophel hears that his advice wasn't followed. And so Ahithophel leaves Jerusalem, returns to his hometown, gets his house in order, gets his affairs in order, grabs a rope, and hangs himself because he had lost everything that he thought was right. His best laid plans had come apart. 
He had lost his position as counselor, and he thought, surely if David comes back, he's going to have my head anyway, so I might as well just end it now. Might as well just pull out and leave. The truth is, I'm convinced by the character of David and the character of God, had Ahithophel stayed and stayed present, had he gone to God and said, Lord, I was wrong, you were right, forgive me, I saw things in the wrong way, had he gone back to David with his face low on the ground and said, David, I was wrong, I missed what God was doing in you, I'm convinced by both of their characters he would have been brought back in. I'm positive there would have been reconciliation and restitution because that is what God is about, that is his character. But instead of Hithophel, when he lost that, when God closed that door, he just let it all go. And it's really easy for you and I to often do the same thing metaphorically with our relationship with God. When things are going well and we're walking in the favor of God, it's easy to bask in that. But when God closes some doors and God doesn't act like we think he should, it's really easy to just give up to think, well, God was never good in the first place. He was never going to lead me in the first place. This probably all was a hoax. And that's where we need to have faith and commitment to keep walking that road with God. If I can invite the team to come back out, we're just going to finish with a song and a prayer. Um, But can I encourage you, there's a difficult aspect about our faith, which is that it doesn't all fit nicely and neatly into a box. I can't explain God perfectly to you, nor can I perfectly explain all of God's ways to you because sometimes God works in ways that I don't understand. And just like that time in Switzerland, there are some days where God closes a door that I'm convinced needs to be open, but it's closed and I don't understand what God is doing. In these moments, it's why it's most important we hold on to these sayings that God is good all the time. And we hold on to these statements saying that God works for the good in all things for those who love him. We hold on to those not as cliched sayings that we can put on a bumper sticker to make us feel better. We hold on to those sayings so that in the midst when God isn't acting like we think he should by our own wisdom, we hold on to the greater truth of his character that says God is still good and he's doing something in me that I don't necessarily understand, but I'm going to stay present in the process with him as he works through his purposes within me. Because even if Ahithophel with all of his wisdom can sometimes miss what God is doing, How easy is it for you or for I to? Let's allow God to be in control and to lead us, even if it doesn't go in the way we always expect. Let's pray. God, you're bigger than we are. And your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And often, God, we don't understand what you're doing. Globally, we look at huge problems in the world. We look at massive issues of suffering and inequality and persecution, and we don't understand what's happening. And even in our own personal lives, we'll often run into walls. In our own wisdom, we think this is the right way to go. This is the right thing that it has to be. But for some reason, that door is constantly closed and we don't understand what you're doing. God, would you help us in this moment? Would you help us to understand that you are bigger than us? You see more than we see. You understand things in a greater way than we understand them. Help us to stay present with you in the process. And rather than like Ahithophel, just leave and abandon it all and call it quits, help us to keep coming back to you. And that as you close doors and move things, that you would shape us into the person you created us to be. 
because God, you love us too much to leave us as we are. You are always working to form us into the image of your son and sometimes that means some difficult walks for us. Would you give us the grace and the strength to continue to walk with you as you do your work within us? Amen.